On this episode, I interview my good friend Jonathan Caldwell about the word righteousness. In our churches, we love to use big words. We obfuscate our pedagogy through superfluous grandiloquence, manifesting hubris instead of demureness. See what I mean? Inconceivable. While I might have a speech impediment, I certainly do not want to have a preach impediment. These get in the way of God's message reaching our hearts and minds. Let's dig through those big words and learn something incredible. Hey, Jonathan, it's good to have you with us today. Excited to be able to have a conversation with you about things, uh, our word of the day, which is righteousness. Define righteousness in your own words. Uh, don't necessarily quote a dictionary, but you're welcome to quote scripture. But give, give us a good personal and practical definition of righteousness. Yeah, um, thanks for uh, asking me to be a part of it. I, as soon as I saw that you were doing this, I thought, I knew exactly what word I wanted to do. wasn't on your initial list that you had sent me, uh, but you said you had plenty of words uh, and this was on your extended list, so I was happy to be able to do that. Before I do that, I think one reason people can get a little um, nervous or overcomplicate this term is because it can go a couple of different directions. Uh, so you have righteousness as a legal term, uh, to be declared righteous or to be in the right uh, is one idea, uh, and that's a biblical idea as well. You also maybe have the idea of justice and fairness. Uh, not exactly, but you almost maybe might think of the kind of social justice thing that's going on right now is one use of the term. Uh, but then you just have the simple idea of upright behavior. And I say this a lot in my preaching. When we use the term righteousness in this way, what we mean is rightness, that which is right. And so I think about a passage like uh, Acts 10 at verse 35, as it's talking about Cornelius, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right. Uh, the, the term there, the Greek term, is what we normally translate as righteousness. And then uh, you see this also as Paul is talking to Felix over in Acts chapter 24, verse 25, and he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. And so we see the, the connection between those three things, uh, and, and it has to do with behavior. And so we can sometimes talk about our behavior and then we can also talk about whether God has declared us righteous or just because of our faith in him, as uh, Romans will go on to talk about. So that makes me think of 1 John chapter 3, verse 7. I'll start back in verse 4. Everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he was revealed so that he might take away sins, and there is no sin in him. Everyone who remains in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. And then it's this verse in particular. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who does what is right, or I think the English Standard Version says, practices what is right, uh, is righteous just as he is righteous. Mm -hmm. So even though, uh, according to John here, even though he has taken away our sins, 
we still must practice righteousness. We still must have the behavior of rightness, which is righteousness. Is, is that the way you, you might word it? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And that's the that's the picture that's given there with Cornelius in, in Acts 10. And then what Paul is talking to Felix about is you have a responsibility for the way you act. Uh, and we are called to act as righteous individuals. There's a really interesting contrast. We all know the passage in Isaiah. We, we, we don't need to maybe go into it uh, about your righteousness are considered as filthy rags. Uh, you, you can look up the context of that uh, on your own time. Uh, and yet over in Revelation, at the end of the book, it talks about our righteous deeds are, that, are the white, clean linen that we're clothed in. Well, what's the difference? Well, I, I would argue the difference is we've been cleansed by Jesus Christ. Therefore, our righteousness, our behavior does something now. Um, you know, it's, it's not us trying to outweigh our unrighteousness with our righteousness. We cannot do that. Uh, it, it's scary how even sometimes Christians almost talk like that. It, it, there is the responsibility of having Jesus' blood wash away those sins so that we can really start on something new. Uh, and then when we're doing these righteous deeds with Christ, then it makes a difference. It's no longer these filthy garments, these filthy rags. Uh, it, it is something of value. So this might be, in some ways, dealing with the same idea, or it might be introducing a new idea. I, I kind of want to get your take on... 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the very end of that chapter. This is that section where it talks about the message of reconciliation that we have that's been given to us. And then there, there verse 20 and 21. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What does it mean to become the righteousness of God? You know, I, I almost wonder if we can read that as the righteous of God, the righteous ones of God. But the idea with the whole verse is still what I just said, that Christ's work on the cross makes it so we can be righteous in God's eyes. Uh, not that he's, uh, you know, crediting us with what Christ did, but that Christ wiped the slate clean. And now we can, uh, well, to, to borrow Paul's language in Romans 6, uh, rise to walk a new life. That, that's kind of how I personally take this passage, that what we have here is uh, kind of a parallel contrast. I don't know if that's the correct uh, term for this, but... Here's a person who had no sin, who became sin, even though that sin didn't belong to him. So that we who have no righteousness can become righteous, even though that righteousness does not belong to us. That you've got a, a parallel uh, pattern there, but what he does, you know, what we did for him is horrible, and what he does for us is fantastic. Right. Uh, because he allows us to become what we could not become on our own. Right, uh, and 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 that that goes right along with what you're talking about with the filthy rags back in the Old Testament, 
not until he came to be sin on our behalf, uh, live perfectly but suffer for our sin, that now our our righteous deeds can actually mean something. They can right. actually be granted or, or placed in our account before God. Right. Uh, let, let me throw this in here while we're on this verse. This phrase, the righteousness of God, uh, can take can have a different meaning as well. Uh, and, and I have this uh, in my notes under like a few different ideas. Uh, this is obviously talking about us becoming the righteousness of God. And where you really have this phrase in, in a big discussion is in Romans 1, uh, Romans 1, 16 and 17, uh, talking about the gospel for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Uh, and so that winds up being a big discussion in the religious world as well, uh, especially in academic circles, what's being discussed there. Uh, and I would argue uh, that it's the rightness of God staying faithful to his promises, uh, specifically to Abraham, and you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God is faithful to that promise and brings about salvation and tells us about it and enacts it through the gospel. And so even in that very loaded phrase, and I realize I'm simplifying it, uh, you know, we're, we're not drilling down for oil there, uh, but it is God doing what God said God would do. Uh, and that's bringing about salvation for mankind. I also wonder if there's not an implication here or, or suggestion, maybe is the better word, of the church itself. Uh, so that we might become the righteousness of God. You know, over in Romans 1, as you mentioned, the gospel uh, accomplishes that righteousness of God. This, this idea of the bride of Christ being presented holy and blameless and pure, uh, that, that righteous thing that God has, that God owns, which is the church. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe there's, there's a connection there also. Let me move forward in a sort of a practical level and, and ask, what does righteousness look like? We've defined it as behavior, as right living or rightness. What does that actually look like? You as a preacher know good and well that there's no reason to reinvent the wheel. Uh, and so I, I was like, I wonder what I've done on this before. And I had, a, I went back to a sermon and, and there's three pictures of righteousness that we could talk about. We could talk about Jesus picture of righteousness. We could talk about Job's picture of righteousness and we can talk about Micah's picture of righteousness. And they're really all the same. Uh, they just obviously come at it from different angles. And so Jesus picture of righteousness is there in the sermon on the Mount where he says, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And uh, I've heard some argue that that uh, impacts how we give. They gave 10%. We must give at least 11%. Uh, I don't think that's what Jesus means there. Uh, probably better application. But what Jesus goes on to say is, and you and, and the listeners know this, uh, he, he gives these examples from the law and, and examples of how they interpreted these things. And it was so strictly by the word. As long as you didn't do that one specific thing, everything leading up to that is acceptable. You have heard it said, you shall not murder. But if you hate your brother, if you despise him, if you talk bad about him, if you curse him, 
the implication then would be you're okay. And Jesus says, absolutely not. And Jesus starts there with murder, but backs up all the way to the heart. And the same thing with adultery and lust. He, he, he starts there at, at the act and backs all the way up to the heart. And he, that's what he does through the rest of that section. Uh, in, uh, you have murder, uh, adultery, uh, the, the subject of divorce and uh, speaking truth. Uh, whether or not you're lying or not, talks about justice, talks about your neighbors. And in all of these things, he says it all begins in the heart. And so I think maybe what we can see there with Jesus' picture of righteousness is righteousness begins in the heart with our attitudes, with what we hope, uh, desire, uh, what we want, that that all begins in the heart. And so this uh, idea of righteousness is not just our behavior, but the activities of the heart and mind that lead to our behavior. And then he talks in chapter six uh, about giving, praying, and fasting. And it, so we switch maybe from these sins to these good things. Uh, so, you know, take off the, the bad, we put on the good. But even in doing these good things, it goes back to the heart. Their heart was not helping the needy because the needy need help. Their, their heart was not fasting and praying because it'll help them draw closer to God. It was to be seen by men. And so this subject of righteousness begins all the way back in the heart. So since you brought up the Sermon on the Mount, it brings up, in my thinking, two verses that uh, go right along with what you're saying, but I think they will help us pursue a certain expectation of ourselves you know right at the very beginning in the beatitudes those those blessed are statements that jesus gives in chapter five he says in verse six blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied there is a longing for right behavior rightness which goes right along with his statements about you know if, if you desire to murder, that's wrong. Well, you know, I don't, I don't want to murder. I just want to hate them. Well, yeah. you're not pursuing and hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You're right. hungering and thirsting for some selfish thing. Uh, you, you couple chapter 5, verse 6 with the end of chapter 6, where it says, uh, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. And so you've got, again, this concept of desiring and having a passion for righteousness. Anybody who has a passion for righteousness is not trying to see how much they can get away with. Exactly. That is a heart issue. That is a, a heart-motivated set of decisions and actions. How old are uh, your boys? Uh, we've got a 15, 13, and 11-year-old. All right. Uh, we, we have the fifteen, uh, the 13-year-old. And um, I don't know about yours, but, but mine is, you know, at that boundary-pushing stage. Uh, what, what can I get away with uh, and that kind of thing? And so I really appreciate your comment there. Uh, that uh, my dad, as a he didn't he didn't believe this. He it it was a reminder. He had a bumper sticker on his, uh, he, but he just had it on his desk and it said, "How much sin can I get away with and still go to heaven?" Uh, and and that's the way we often treat it. Uh, that we haven't we haven't made the 
uh, step of maturation where we long to be like God. We don't want to go to hell. Uh, and don't get me wrong, that's a great motivation. But we haven't crossed over to wanting to be like God, wanting to be with God. And that's why Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is so powerful because the whole thing is about righteousness. How can we become more like him? How can we become more like God? And he, that's, that's why some of the things he says are so incredibly difficult because it means we have to get rid of this old way of thinking, you know, how can I get away with it and still be pleasing? Yeah, absolutely. And again, I think that's why Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount the way he does with that story of the two builders. They're both building a house. They're both facing the same obstacles. They both have a storm come up against them, but it's the one who has built on the rock that stands. Well, the one who built on the rock is the one who hears and obeys. Uh, the one who built on the sand where his house fell is the one who hears but does not obey. So you could reword that. Yeah, reword that as the one who hears and pursues righteousness has a firm foundation. The one who hears but disregards righteousness, uh, they're the ones who, who fall flat. Job 29 is a powerful and wonderful uh, passage about righteousness. And in verses 1 through 11, um, are reactions to and consequences of the right behavior. Uh, this is how you've behaved, and this is the response from others and the consequences of that righteous behavior. And then in verses 12 through 17, he talks about what the righteous behavior is. He describes all this action and behavior towards those who could not help themselves. We don't want to just limit righteousness to what we do at church on Sunday. Uh, now, there's a role there. There are things we should and should not be doing. But this is a, a full life-encompassing idea. Yeah, that, that, that's excellent. And then you have the, um, we, we can do this one quickly because we've all heard multiple sermons uh, on this. And uh, that's in Micah chapter six. I, I love the picture though. Uh, just real quick summary. Uh, God has an indictment against the people of Israel. What, how have I treated you so badly uh, that you ignore me, that you treat me like this? And, and the people say, you're right, you're right. What can we do to make this right? And I can just almost see Micah's, you know, exasperation. He's told you, oh man, what is good. And that's to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with the Lord. And, and so Micah kind of brings all of this together where he teaches that our relationship with others and God determines righteousness. And that's why you so often see those first two commandments together. Uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And if we are neglecting that second one, we have neglected the first one. Absolutely. Well, the uh, tagline for the show is pulpit words for the pew. Yep. So we're, we're again, we're trying to make these words understandable, relatable, uh, applicable to the everyday Christian, what else do we need to talk about to get to that level of understanding for the word righteousness? The fear I have in some of this is not maybe couching the idea of grace here. So yes, we are called to live a certain way. We 
understand the the passage I read in Acts 24 as Paul is talking to Felix that we have to exercise self-control. We need to uh, be doing that which is righteous or right. Uh, we were warned about the judgment because we're going to be judged based on what we do. But we never want to think that this righteousness somehow gets to the point of giving us salvation. All of that reminds me of one of my favorite passages, which is over in Titus 3. I want to start reading in verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ or Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So here we've got a very uh, clear uh, telling of us of, you know, it, we're not saved because we're righteous, but we are righteous because we are saved. Now, if we're not righteous, we're not going to have salvation, but our salvation is not due to our righteousness. And I think of about a passage like uh, uh, Luke 17 at verse 7. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank his servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, when you've done all that which is right for you to do, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. What a fantastic place to leave this interview, talking about that great parable from Luke chapter 17. And may we all have the attitude where we say, we are only but servants. We have only done that which we ought to have done. A big thank you to Jonathan Caldwell for joining me today and talking about the word righteousness. Thanks again for listening to Preach Impediment. Let me remind you that if you enjoyed the episode, we'd love to have you leave some comments, let us know what we can do better, or let us know what topics you would like to hear discussed. We greatly desire for you to share this podcast with those that you think could benefit from hearing great definitions and discussions regarding words that we use as we discuss the Bible. And if you are enjoying this podcast, we ask that you will subscribe to it. If you need more information about Preach Impediments, you can find out more at preachimpediments.com.